0: Welcome to Therapize Podcast. This is your host, Guy Hernandez, licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California. And today we have a very special guest, Matis Miller, licensed, social, licensed clinical social worker and author of the new book, uh, The Uncontrollable Child understand and manage your child's disruptive moods with dialectical behavior therapy skills. Well, thank you, Montes, for being here. And uh, why don't you just let the people know a little bit about yourself before we get into your book.
1: Yes, thank you, Guy, for having me here. Um, a little bit about my, myself. I'm located in the state of New Jersey. Uh, I practice as a clinician. I have a group private practice. I'm the founder and the director of the Center for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapy of New Jersey. I've been practicing a little over 16 years now. I work with individuals, families. I also lecture on topics related to CBT, DBT, other evidence-based psychotherapies, as well as lecture to parents and lay audiences regarding uh, topics such as parenting. Wow.
0: Well, thank you for being here. And I think you're the perfect guest because uh, when I read your book, it's practical right it, and, and my podcast really is a is about the practical everyday stuff and and, and not becoming overly clinical and uh, a book triple the size to talk about you know tons of evidence that's not really written for the layperson this totally is I mean anyone could pick this up and begin working on things and uh, I, I really like that it's and we'll get into it a little bit more uh, but it's very non-judgmental as well you know sometimes, uh, and we can feel the, the judgment in some of the readings. Uh, so excellent book. I want to start off simply with the title, The Uncontrollable Child. I, I, I imagine people are listening to this or are coming across this book and going, yeah, I've got one of those. What does The Uncontrollable Child look like in your eyes?
1: Yeah. And I think I forgot to mention, which people like to know, I'm, I'm also a father of six. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> but, lots of lived experience. Yes. lots. I got three boys and three girls. Um, wow. We all have a little bit of an uncontrollable child, I would guess, in ourselves yeah. and in our surroundings. Um, so a lot of people can relate to the, to the title. Yes, it is focused. There's no singular definition uh, for the uncontrollable child. And in the book I talk about, there are sometimes children who come have a specific diagnosis, such as ADHD or ODD, or uh, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which is a relatively new diagnosis. However, I I really look at it as the emotionally sensitive child, the reactive child, the child that the parents are saying, oh, no, like this child's out of control. I can't deal with this anymore. I'm losing it. I'm feeling hopeless. And I think what the feedback I'm getting with this book is every parent can really relate to this because there are different stages and times as we watch our children grow. And there are times in different stressors and we see there's some uncontrollable behavior or we're feeling out of, con- out of control. Right. Well, so, uh, I did write the, big, the book more specifically for that child who's more emotionally sensitive, crying more often, tantrum more often, maybe uh, more you know delinquent teenager, or compl- you know, non-compliant, things like that. But I think it can apply to, to many of us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to your point in the book is the, the skills in there, are, I think, are helpful for anyone, whether you're a parent of six or a parent of an uncontrollable child or one that's going great. I mean, they're, these are excellent relationship skills here that uh, that are in your book. And I think before we get to some of the parts, I, uh, the dialectical behavior part, I think some people might be familiar with it, some not. Uh, we know the background is it. Marsha Linehan developed it. Uh, to treat borderline uh, personality disorder. But now, of course, it's been, uh, DBT has been used broadly elsewhere, obviously in, in your family work. And I, you know, I've, I love using some of these DBT skills as well. And as I'm reading, I'm going, oh yeah, I was just having uh, that similar conversation uh, last week. Uh, but yeah, what, you explain it so well in the book. How do you describe dialectical behavior to families when you're in treatment with them and you start this process of integrating dbt into family work to help the uncontrollable child or help the parents with yeah, the uncontrollable
1: child an excellent question and i think dialectics is something that can really be helpful in broadening our mind shifting our focus uh, as you mentioned earlier guy being more less judgmental more compassionate more opening And I try to teach parents this concept of where they're, I often see they're vacillating to extremes where they're just letting things go. They're just accepting this is what it is. I, you know, I, I can't change this or I tried and it didn't work. So I'm just trying to accept the child. And then on the other extreme, there are parents who are constantly trying to change their child and this is not okay. And it shouldn't be this way. And I'm trying to should be able to do this and that and they're being sometimes punitive in their their approach in terms of their being disciplined and criticized so what i try to explain to parents is that dialectics teach us that there can be two ideas or two concepts that could both be true at the same time and sometimes at first they have a hard time dealing with that because it's it's paradoxical if you think about the concepts of acceptance and change which is a core concept in DBT. If I'm accepting my situation, if I'm accepting myself, then it is what it is, I'm not making change. And if I'm changing, I'm focused on changing, I'm not accepting. And so really helping the parents see that there are two perspectives and it really helps them get unstuck and also to understand their child because many children who are more emotionally sensitive, um, they do get stuck. They too also have very black and white extreme thinking. And if, if the parent themselves could learn to take that step back and be able to see that there is another truth, there is a kernel on the other side, there's this perspective and that, and then there is that perspective. And then I go into them to explain to them, and therefore there's no right way. Right. There's right. no one path to being a parent, uh, although there's great stuff out there. And I'd, I'd love to tell you, this is the manual and you follow this manual and your child will be exactly what you want them to be. It doesn't work like that. Because it's not, sure. you know, there's always a, a child with a different temperament, different needs, different environment, and the idea of dialectics allows us to to not get stuck and to be open to interact with our child uh, with the ideas of acceptance and change and try to be see what's the most effective approach.
0: Yeah, I I love it, and I and it's funny because as reading the book as well, you you can. You can fill with each definition with acceptance, which I'd like to get into right now, because I think that comes up for for parents sometimes, um, where it feels it feels tricky, even though it's a, it can be a simple concept, but also difficult to to get to, um, because acceptance. And I I I interviewed an author a couple of months ago, and we 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 actually talked about acceptance, mindfulness, and how sometimes it's misinterpreted, or if we accept that definition, it comes with maybe uh, some negative connotations or, or some preconceived notions they have about it. For example, how can I accept something I don't like, right? How can I accept something I don't approve of? And there's actually a difference between the two, right? And and you give some um, beautiful definitions uh, of it in an example in the book, but could you just kind of talk about what when you work with parents and they kind of get into those modes where they're like, I can't accept this, this is unacceptable. <laughs>
1: exactly. yeah. what do you, how do you work right. with them on that? Yeah. This wouldn't be happening. Right. So, as you said, I, I help them understand acceptance doesn't mean approval, acceptance yeah. doesn't mean that you're okay with it. Acceptance, all well, sometimes they feel, well, acceptance means there's no hope. Acceptance doesn't mean that you can't make change and that there will be change over time. Acceptance is the ability to wholly accept and get in touch with the reality that is in this very moment, even if it's something that actually creates a lot of, and very often, negative emotion. You might feel some sadness and some grief or frustration that things aren't exactly the the way you want them to be. What I'd like to say is acceptance, as we say in DBT, pain plus acceptance equals pain. But pain plus non-acceptance equals suffering. So when we're in a painful situation, we start fighting that reality and we don't want to accept it. And we say, it's unacceptable. What's the cause of that? How does that affect you? How does that affect your interaction with your child? Acceptance is still pain when you accept the situation. But when you move away from fighting that reality, it actually decreases the suffering. And it's more effective than trying to change or not allowing the reality to be
0: absolutely and, and, and it makes sense that it, it ties right to mindfulness which i think we'll get to next which is the the next step um but when we when we refuse to accept we're it, it's like we're still trying to force the expectation that we had and even if that's not the reality of the situation and and when we're forcing that we're maybe living over there and in, in, in that suffering place and we're actually then not being present with what is in front of us and what we actually can do to change it. And, and I, I, I really love the definitions of breaking away some of those maybe negative associations that people have with acceptance, right? It's not giving in, it's not going, okay, it, it is what it is in a hopeless sense. You can say it is what it is in a, in realistically, but it's not saying I, this will never change. Like, that's not what it means. It means I'm acknowledging this is, this is where things are at today. And, What do I want to do going forward?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And even helping parents understand acceptance is a journey. And that's what, like you said before, I really wanted to make this a really practical, filled with examples, how to step by step, because there are strategies that can help us move on. It's not like today I'm accepting. Now we're good, I, I, I went into exactly. acceptance. It, and, and we keep our mind keeps turning away from acceptance. And the, the, the ability, as you said, going to mindful awareness of noticing when you're moving off that path of acceptance and gently bringing yourself back again and again, and seeing that ultimately it's, it's more effective. And also, we can think about ourselves as adults. You know, when you grow up in an environment, and many of us may have experienced where your environment doesn't accept you for who you are, or as you said, guys, so well, that there are certain expectations or standards that are put on you that are not within your capability, or it's part of your temperament or personality, you end up developing, growing, and developing these really strong negative beliefs about yourself. This, the, the, as we refer to, like this internal critic and the judgment towards yourself that I should be able to do this and I should be able to do that. And it really affects our children in the long term. And when parents can be mindful and take a step back and think about what is their long-term goal, and they can understand and you can educate them how fighting the reality and not accepting and putting your standards expectations on your child right now is actually going to hurt them now and in the long term. And I know people don't want that.
0: Yeah. Because what it reminds me of is when when it's fought, and it, I think this comes to the validation piece that I love that chapter that we'll we'll come to later on, but when it's when it's fighting against the reality with the child, it's like they could on the one hand feel badly, right, because they're feeling dysregulated on whatever that is, but then if there's the non-acceptance from the, the parental, you know, figures, then it's like, now I feel badly for feeling badly. Cause I shouldn't feel this way. And what is wrong? And like, I can see how the spiral can build and the, the negative cognitions and self-esteem can start to become developed. Um, the, the sense of agency might decrease about even being able to effectively self-regulate because I'm not even supposed to be here is the message I'm, I might be getting
1: and yeah, i just want to answer that not only yeah. to the child and i think you mentioned this earlier to the parent the yeah. parent is, it's not easy to parent parenting is a wonderful sure. thing it's a struggle and we also have to accept ourselves and we have yeah. to accept that sometimes we will have some negative emotions or we won't be as effective or we will parent in the way that we prefer not to that we learned in our last therapy session or from chapter three in the uncontrollable child <laughs> the point is to take a step back and also accept yourself when you notice those that thought this is unacceptable something can some things obviously in our dialectic you know so very often people hear and say well there are some things that are, are unacceptable <laughs> yes of course and that's our dialectic is but right. we have to see are we you know we have to find that balance
0: yeah absolutely and getting into mindfulness and you and you you talked about strategies because i think that's that's you know that's your next chapter after acceptance, and that's the stepping back and observing, and uh, that's one of those things too. And I'm going to throw those roadblocks that you put in there at, at you because I, we hear them all the time, right? And I think our role as as clinicians, and I and I provide a lot of parent teen, parent teen therapy specifically. So you know our or as I see my role is you know, validating, doing all those things for them and then helping them kind of transition that relationship onward. Right. So that they feel accepted and not judged. And then, you know, they can translate or transfer that relationship as well. Those skills as well. This idea of mindfulness though, anyway, uh, anyways, uh, I'm not the Zen yoga type. Right. And I see in your book and before I get to the roadblocks, it's like, of course, I mean, I've, I've heard this. I, you know, I know many therapists heard it or I, I just can't slow down and calm my thoughts. And, and it's really not about that, right? Like I could be frustrated and also mindful, mindful that I'm frustrated, mindful that I'm tense and, and angry. So what's your, you know, how do you in session with with parents with children even help them understand mindfulness when you see some of those roadblocks come up
1: yeah no, that's beautifully stated mm-hmm. i think that i help them understand exactly that you might not be doing daily meditation and yoga and take mindful walks perhaps you can do some small exercise like some mindful breathing and we know there are tremendous benefits to mindfulness what Marsha Linehan does in DBT, which I think is so helpful for people, is she breaks mindfulness down into very concrete, specific skills. And those skills are not practices necessarily that you're sitting meditating. They're skills that you could bring into your everyday interactions in life. And it, it's much more relatable to parents when they can learn a skill of being non-judgmental mm-hmm. or a skill of describe or learning how to communicate while sticking to the facts. Learning how to uh, do what works and be effective. Learning how to throw themselves in and participate in their the parent-child moments in life and let go of self-consciousness. So there, these are skills. And when we take scenarios and we break it down in their parenting, we could help them give uh, a name, a strategy, of a skill, and how to actually use that, rather than just say, you know, practice mindfulness for. 20 minutes a day and they are being more mindful. And to the second thing you're saying is in the moment, the skill of observe or being in the moment is allowing whatever your experience you're experiencing to be. So if you you are frustrated, it is a superpower that ability to be mindful and have a buffer between you and your emotional experiences, Mm. you and your thoughts, enables you to actually be more effective as a parent, to be more in control. You're more in control by letting go of control.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Go ahead.
1: No, so I was saying, so I think that when parents uh, are able to implement these skills in in, in a more practical way, it's really helpful. And
0: and you give uh, plenty of real life examples in of parent child interactions that, um, you know, I've got a newborn, so I'm not in that part yet of, of, seeing my, you know, child fight with a sibling or a, you know, a a friend. So you give all these examples, but I've seen it, you know, through being a therapist also through being an educator in a school for a few years and working in schools. And you have this moment where you see things starting to build. Right. And if you have multiple kids and you're listening to this and you you see, okay, your mind might say there's a fight coming, right? Yes. Yes. And then, Internally, if you check in with yourself, your your tension might be building then because now you're not really observing the facts. And, it, and by all means, I don't mean this judgmentally towards parents or anyone. It's human nature to automatically have these, these judgments and assess the situation based on historical events, right? Based on past patterns. And sometimes our assumptions and judgments are wrong. And then we then respond to the situation based off of where we're at emotionally, instead of stepping back. And that's what you articulate in the book of going, well, I could acknowledge that my anxiety is going up because this is a scenario where my kids, this usually turned into a big fight. How, how now can I step back and observe the facts? And and if one of the facts is I'm feeling anxious about this situation going poorly, but if I acknowledge that, then my, I might be able to acknowledge the facts of what they're doing a little bit better and maybe also attune to what their needs might be a little, a little bit more, more accurately and objectively.
1: Absolutely. So not only is it helping you regulate your own emotion and the research shows this by labeling and, and observing and describing your own experiences, which actually can decrease some of that frustration, anxiety. It also allows you to observe and see really what's going on in your environment and be more in touch. We're so bombarded today by technology and distractions and, and the stressors of life that very often, if we don't take that step back and we just allow, like you said, these thoughts, these judgmental thoughts and these emotions to build, then they become us. And then we act impulsively. We become that experience with that, without that ability. And also it helps us be more effective. If you see, I like your example, you know, when you see the children interacting and you know. They start to get a little bit more giddy or this one is on top of this one. If you're mindful and you're present when you're with your children, you can catch those moments and actually you could be more effective, not just for yourself, but in terms of the children, maybe giving them some distance between each other, finding a more structured activity, some redirection. So mindfulness helps for you, but it will also help your interaction with your kids. The other thing is those judgmental thoughts. And, And I think that for me, in my experience, is the most powerful mindfulness piece that's important for parents because we all judge, as you said, Guy. And I think we, when parents come into me, the first thing is like, "Well, he shouldn't be doing this. She shouldn't be acting like this. Mm-hmm. This is not okay." And when I explain to this them this concept, no, they should be doing these things because they are doing these things. They look at me I'm like, "I'm paying you this money for you to tell my kid should be doing this," and I, I, I just want to get them off kilter a little bit, and for then sure. bring them back to say. They're doing what they're doing because there are causes. Let's move away from labeling it as bad or even good Mm -hmm. and seeing what it is. And let's look at causes because causes, if we understand causes, then we can try to address those causes, which is leading to the problem behavior rather than get stuck on judging and blaming. Because when we judge and blame, I mean, we've been judged before. Do we like when we're judged? And, And what comes up even towards ourselves when we judge? leads to more frustration, more negative emotion. Uh, and, and that's gonna get in the way of you connecting your child, it's gonna get in the way of you accepting your child, it's gonna get away, in, in, in your, your child is going to pick up with their very sensitive antennas, especially the sensitive child, mm-hmm. those negative emotions that, oh, I'm that terrible kid, or you know, I never do anything right, or there I go again, they're not like they're consciously aware of all those pieces depending on the age, but that's what they feel because of those judgmental thoughts. So just being able to shift, being aware, even just noticing your judgment thoughts. Yeah. that, that That's huge. Absolutely. <laughs> that in itself gives you the space. And then learning how to replace them and say, see what is as opposed to what you think should be. Right. Powerful in parenting.
0: And, and I think the shoulds, and shoulds are throughout your book, we hear shoulds in treatment all the time. We, we use shoulds as humans yeah. across the board because that should place would feel a little easier and more convenient, right, at the time. And, and when we're moving through the world as, as, as parents or, or just as humans, we're, we're working through as it, it feels comfortable to us, right? And when those things start to erupt with children, it feels less comfortable, right (laughs) and then it then the should comes up maybe but you know also it it could even be our judgments increase because we're worried about other judgments as well and how are other people perceiving my parenting and then I push that judgment out outward so what I really love about DBT is it's it's not just about um, helping the parent with their uncontrollable child so to speak it's also about helping the parent with how the experience is for them and for them to feel maybe more ease with it, you know, more regulated in, 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 in themselves, because, you know, a regu- when a, a parent approaches a situation with, you know, intense anxiety or dysregulation, we know you can't really fight fire with fire, right. It, it might erupt more, but if a parent feels more regulated for one, doesn't that feel better to be regulated, but then it also sets the stage for a more regulated interaction and hopefully, you know, alternative outcomes for that parent that builds more hope over time and, and builds, I think, uh, not ultimately, but, you know, m- more positive relationship with the Absolutely. parent and child, you know.
1: Absolutely, and I think, I try to give that message over that throughout the book, and I think you mentioned that earlier, like really a compassionate message to the parent, yeah. that, it, that it, it, it is not, it's hard, and sometimes you know i'm not the perfect parent you know <laughs> and i wrote the book so, and, and i'm constantly on that journey to be more mindful and aware and do what works and understand the needs for each individual child uh, if i'm out there in uh, target and and my child's having a full-blown tantrum <laughs> and they're looking around and say isn't that the guy that wrote the book you know yeah they talk about all my thoughts like what are they thinking yeah. you know i don't have it together you know um, but to be aware of your own judgments and notice them as judgments, and think about what is the most effective. And that's really mindfulness: what is the most effective thing for me to do with my child right now in the moment? And um, with an emotionally sensitive child, especially if there's a child in your family, and you have a, you sometimes you know people have one, two, or three children, or or as a teacher, or as uh, you know trying to help people as a mental health professional, you you find that. Uh, there, there are individuals in certain environments that are not how you expect them to be. Your child grows up, and this one is just acting different than the other children. And you have a certain uh, mental construct and perspective of, of what that child should look like. And you have to have that ability to learn to take that step back and realize that perhaps what you were doing with this one is not going to be effective with this one. Mm-hmm. And by, like you said, by pushing that agenda, you're only going to hurt the relationship and the child and yourself over time.
0: And also that idea of pushing the agenda, and I, I compare it to quicksand, never been in quicksand, but the, the futility of fighting against something that is taking you downward. And we do it so regularly. So by all means, any parent listening to this, I mean, all of this as compassion to parents, right? Like it is, I think our urge to, uh, well, actually we'll get to the opposite action idea, right? Our urge in those moments is to fight harder, right? When, when something, when we're in, in the middle of uh, whatever that is that isn't working is the urge is to keep going forward, not necessarily step back. And part of DBT as well, the, the idea of opposite action is, I might have the urge to tell my kid something that hundredth time, but maybe i'm just getting more and more ramped up and maybe it's the opposite action is let me step back and and pause maybe um so we didn't talk about opposite action but i think that's a a great uh it actually has helped me tremendously in my individual life when i when i learned about that idea but could you tell people just a little bit about what that idea is in in dbt and why why it can be helpful and important
1: sure opposite action can be very important because First of all, going back on the first point that you said, I think our natural tendency, or as humans, the first thing we want to do is fix. Like you mm-hmm. said, so we, you know, there's something broken in your house, you fix it. You don't, right. accept it, you know, or or if I feel an emotion, emotion has a function, and that's how that's part of our, our being. If we have emotion of frustration, it wants it, it wants us to attack, it wants us to address, it wants us. And actually, by acting according to the, our emotion in the short term, that is a little bit relieving. You know, it's it's our natural uh, urge and how right. our emotion wants us to respond, which is very important for survival. You know, when we're feeling angry, we're being attacked in many environments. At the same time, in a very often, it's not effective to act on the, that emotion. So, what do we do? So, if we're mindful and aware, by going opposite our our emotion, action. So we have the urge to attack. And opposite, if we can actually even go to the other extreme. So if you feel like raising your voice, yeah, make voice more quiet. You know. And what's what's amazing about opposite action is our our body communicates to our minds, and we see know this in research. So when we actually go opposite that urge, it's very hard in the beginning, but once we start acting how we want to act what we need what we know is more effective that can actually have effect on our emotion and the more and more and and that's really exposure treatment which i'm sure you're familiar with for sure yeah which is a lot of us when we do things repeatedly that's opposite of what we want to so you you know you 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 get into a bad car accident and you're like i'm not going into the car again what are your Mm -hmm. friends and family they know you got to get back in right now and you got to keep going you got to do it again and again and again again Gotta go opposite that anxiety, that threat, okay. that fear to avoid and do it again and again. And if you do, over time, it will get easier. So opposite action has a benefit in the, in the moment because it helps you, even the moment, it communicates your mind to help calm you. If you continuously do it, you actually develop a new behavior and strengthen that behavior in the moment. And you'll also feel better about yourself because yes, the short-term acting on the emotion feels good, Mm-hmm. Acting on the urge feels good. Over the long term, leads to guilt, feeling sad, hopeless, disappointed. when you go on opposite action, it has a it helps you feel good about yourself. Builds your own self respect when you look back and say, "Hey, look what I did." So there's so many benefits of using a skill like that.
0: As you were talking, it made me think of how easily as humans we're built uh, to fight for the the short term win and sacrifice. You know the what is it? Uh I may have won the battle, but I'm losing the war here. Right. And and I so I want to normalize that for anyone listening is that yeah, that's our urge, right? If I if my kid is out of control and 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 I go, well why would I do opposite action? Why would I stop here? I've been letting them win. I'm letting them get away with this. And it, it can feel that way. And that's what I think sometimes one of those roadblocks to that. So it can absolutely feel like we're we're giving up And and it doesn't necessarily mean that. And there's a dialectic, right? I can step back and it not mean I'm giving up. Maybe now I'm just assessing things differently. And the question I asked in those moments too, I said, well, and there's, I work a lot with school refusal, teenagers in school refusal. And so that hundred times thing rings very true to the work I do because it's like the hundredth prompt, right? The hundredth knock on the door, get up and get to school, which has been more way more complicated with the pandemic but anyways uh so i go well you know mom dad by that fifth prompt by that 10th prompt you know is it effective right i love that yeah i just want to know that for you how and how do you feel each prompt as you go upward and yeah. try to build in that mindful awareness because part of you know my role isn't to uh, you know, it is to help the parent with the child and help, but it's also to help the parent feel better themselves. Like, hey, if you, if you step back and go, well, shoot, 10th time, I'm outraged and, and it's not working. Say, well, it would it be worth it to reduce that energy. If it's going in a direction that seems to only be sinking you further down and exhausting you more. If we could also accept that it doesn't mean you're giving in, you're just recognizing that it's not effective. And we, said. we start to
1: change that. Yes, yes, and I love the dialectic there. <laughs> and I think also the fact is when they, uh, take, when they take that step back, uh, that also can lead to them feeling, well, then I'm not parenting. Well, then I'm not mm-hmm. doing my role. There could be roadblocks. Every you know, And as a cognitive therapist, we're always thinking about those cognitions that are constantly right. getting away. And, and, and that example, you said you've worked in a school. And I just had someone came in <laughs> for a consultation talking about a child. And the, the teacher every other week is suspending the child. Mm-hmm. And I, and I asked them, so what's the goal? Yeah. What are they trying to do? I'm like, get him, I don't know, get him to learn a lesson. Is it working? Mm-hmm. How many weeks have they been suspending this child? Yeah. It, the, you know, the goal might have switched to get the child out of the class because they don't want to deal with the behavior.
0: Yes. Initially,
1: <laughs> initially, I'm sure many teachers are giving a consequence or some sort of punishment because they want the child to learn. Is it effective? So, well, if I don't knock, then he's gonna think it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Or there, there might be a lot of, and when you take that step back and you say, is this working? So what do you want me to do? Just leave him like that? And that's where I would tell parents, well, let's experiment. Let's see what happens. You know. Well, then he's not gonna get up. Is he getting up now? No. <laughs> <You know? laughs> You know, so helping them realize that it's not effective, it's only hurting because it's creating more tension in the relationship. Right. The, being, the child is just getting upset and you're getting more upset and you're lingering with that all through the day. So asking that word, and, like you said to the parent, is this effective? Yeah. Is this working? And what's getting in the way?
0: And in the language you used, because you use that in the book as well. And and you talked about earlier too, getting away from the right and wrongs, the good bads, because that that then keeps us in the, the black or white more rigid thinking, and and takes away from our our flexibility, which you also get to in the book, where we we can still maintain structure as parents and and discipline, but be more flexible, right? So just because you're you're stopping the tenth or twentieth prompt, it doesn't mean there's other there's not other ways to approach the situation.
1: So. Yes, and that's dialectics. Right. It teaches us that there's not only one way to see a situation and there's not only one strategy or technique and that ability to say, you know, there's just not this one path or this one focus can be really helpful. And I do talk about that dialectic of acceptance and change and consistency versus flexibility. You know, we're taught as parents, be consistent, be consistent, be consistent. At the same time, Not every situation is it effective to be consistent. Sometimes we have to be flexible ourselves and model flexibility for our children.
0: And that's where I think mindfulness can come in each situation. Not every situation is going to be exactly the same. Sure. Certain things could be, can become predictable over time. Hey, it's nine o'clock time to brush teeth and blah, blah, blah. Hey, we cut off electronics at 10. And then sometimes there's, there is the, where, where is the room for flexibility, right? Where do we go? Mm, there's a little bit different context here. Let me be mindful and, and pay attention that this situation might be different. Even if I'm getting uh, maybe stuck in my, you know, ha- habitual structure and routine, which we also try to create, right? Yes,
1: and yes, that's and so important. And that's right. the dynamic. We need yeah. structure and routine and we need flexibility. Yep. I think there's no better example than what many of us are going through today in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, you say there's a screen time. You're only allowed this much time a day. Yeah. And then the child is home all day, you know, little classes, little going on. You're trying to do your work. Right. And you're trying to stay stuck on your rule of only, you know, this and this time. You might have to be a little bit more flexible because it's more effective. The child mm-hmm. doesn't have the social opportunities that they had prior to this time. Right to connect their friends they need some more downtime there are there are more stress there's a place for this uh, uh, or it might be uh, you, you know yes you have a curfew but the child comes and overall they're been compliant and they're doing what they have to do and they're and they want to do something that makes you a little bit uncomfortable and stay out a little bit later and they're not you know 10 anymore now they're 14. Mm-hmm you need to be a little bit more flexible. You have to understand change is constant. You have to go opposite action again. Yeah. You have that urge to say, no, time's a time. You got to be back. Be a little bit more open. Show the child the different circumstances. Maybe their best friend is having some sort of uh, you know birthday outing together. And, and it's just a time that there's times to bend. That's a clear mm-hmm. one. There are ones that it really all comes back, Guy, as you said, to mindfulness. Mm-hmm. The more uh-huh. you are, the more you see the bigger picture. And that's, I think, what I'm giving over in this book. I'm giving a lot of practical strategies that parents need in terms of change also and how to discipline and how to put in limits and all these important steps. But it's really about the ability to be more flexible and open in your thinking and to do what works.
0: Yeah. And it's funny, as you mentioned that the the fourteen-year-old is now fourteen, no longer ten, mm. and change is constant, which is is the a beautiful dialectic. And we fear we can naturally fear that or get anxious over change at the same time. And back to mindfulness, right? I can acknowledge because I can hear the roadblock coming up, right? Well, if my child pushes it here, they'll put they'll keep pushing it, right? Now, now the line has moved further. And that goes into, okay, how do I introduce some mindfulness here? I'm feeling anxious that this will happen, right? I can now acknowledge that I'm worried. If I allow my kid to do this, it'll, it'll mean more pushing of the boundaries, trying to stay out late all the time. And that that's where you can introduce the mindfulness. Okay, so what's it like for you to kind of feel that? What are you worried about and concerned? What's now what are the facts of the situation? How can you approach it in a way that's clear? And, you know, maybe say, okay, this is this is an exception here that I feel comfortable with today and over time we'll continue to talk, but of allowing more flexibility in that. Right. Cause in that moment when the child asks, technically it's a yes or no answer. Right. Can I stay out later? Yeah. But, but within that, we might be anxious about what does this mean for the future? And again, mindfulness.
1: Yeah. And I just want to point out, cause that was a beautiful dialectic yeah. that you just stated is that the kid is going to push want more. And he should push more, mm-hmm. he's a kid and he's yeah. a teen, and he, and he has that rebellious tendency or he, ha- he wants what he wants. Yeah. So he should push and that likely will happen. And that's where you have to find that balance of getting right back to putting those limits and consistent when they push back. So you're constantly balancing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do like the he should push. and and I introduce that a lot. You know, we play devil's advocate a little bit with the parents of going. Well, tell me why he should go to school, right? Why should he do anything differently than he's doing now? You know, I know, and I go, and yeah, and I validate them. I know, or I don't. I don't know, uh, but I imagine this isn't comfortable for you. If this is exhausting, frustrating. That your child is not doing the, be, you know, the desired behavior that they're, they're sitting at home and, and not going to school. I imagine that don't feel great. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <Yes. laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. And I think I, I, I want to touch on that because I think it's so important and it can be hard to do. Cause again, there's a, there's a dialectic that occurs. And my last session, uh, my last parent child session, we, we went into a lot of validation We're talking about it, both the parent, the child. And and I think this this for me comes up in, in every parent-child session I have or when I'm working in that, that dynamic. There's an aspect where when the power struggle occurs, we both can't be right. <laughs> There's also an aspect, and you, you articulate this in the book, where validating doesn't mean I agree with what you're saying. It, it also, again, doesn't mean I'm giving in either because I think there can be anxiety for the parent or for any of us to validate when we experience something uncomfortable or that, we, that we, we don't understand or that we disagree with. So if my child comes to me and says, uh, you don't love me. And I go, well, yeah, I do. Here are all the facts. We aim to convince. That's our urge, right? Again, with opposite action. My urge is to convince you. Because maybe that hurt me that my child said that to me. Maybe it hurt me that my child said, all you care about is good grades. Because now it's maybe presented as an attack. Uh, All you care about is me getting into, you know, X, Y, and Z schools. The parent goes, that's not true. I care about all of these other things. That's not true. For one, for the parents, totally understand the response. I mean, that's got to hurt to feel your that your child feels that way and that it feels untrue to you. And here's the dialectic. It can feel untrue to them, the parent, but also feel true
1: <laughs> to the child. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how, how do you validate? How can you, how can you both be right? So I wonder two points. First of all, the reason, part of the reason why it's so hard is because when our emotions get more intense or higher, that executive functioning, part of our brain that is keeping us more mindful or focused, we flip a lid and our emotions take over and we have that reaction. There's where mindfulness helps us again. Dialectics, child comes, says, you don't love me. So the, you know what I just did for you yesterday? I just (laughs) picked you up from school. You know how how much traffic I've done? Now I don't love you? You know how many things I have to do today? So the, the first thing is taking a step back, and, and and what you did, guy, beautiful, was a was a great uh, represent, you know, uh, presentation to your audience, of validation to the parent. You actually <laughs> use some validation skills. So the parent's not validating and say, you know what, it's true, I don't love you, because that's not true. That's not validation. We don't valid what's right. we don't validate what's invalid. Can you validate to him and say, you know? Uh, you know, Johnny, I, I can see why you might feel like that. So what I'm doing is I'm validating his feeling because that is factual. That is valid, right? Where I'm validating his thought. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying I agree with it. So I can validate what his experience is. And when you do that immediately, that power struggle decreases because it helps regulate the child's emotion because they feel like you're hearing them. You're present. Mm -hmm. They feel like you're understanding and that will allow for better dialogue and better connection. So it's, I totally see why, because I, I did that and I told you, you can't go out with your friends, that you might feel like I don't care about you. Right. You know, and, and I see that because this was, this was really important to you. Well, if it was so important, then let me go. Right? <laughs> you know, and, and we'll get, we could get into that. So I'd say, yeah, at the same time, at the same time, I really love you. And I hope, I hope you'll feel that at some point, mm-hmm. but that's where it's coming from. So, and, the, and what I really also talk about in the book is that valid, there's not always a time to validate. And I, I feel like sometimes that's over, validate your child. Val, there are right. times when validation is not effective. If a child is swearing at you or a full-blown tantrum, you're not gonna sit there and start validating them because mm-hmm. that is reinforcing the behavior in the moment. You know, perhaps after when they're calm down, then you can validate what those experiences are. Very often, parents are scared of another roadblock. Well, validate, like you said, means I'm giving them a message. This is okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So on the dialectic, you can validate their experience. You can validate and make sense why they did what they did. At the same time, help them understand that it's not an appropriate behavior. And we have to figure out what to do in future situations.
0: I beautifully stated there. and. I think such a common conversation I have is around that interaction and, and, and when to tie, you know, time it and all that. And again, I'm going to position it here, mindfulness, right? If we can step back and see when validation will be helpful. And, and this is also that flexible piece, right? I'm not, there's not a, these are, I, these are like foundational ideas, not, do this checklist, you know, uh, and it's going to work and everything's going to be great. It's just kind of a path to, to more regulation in the household, more connection, um, and more, I think, easier management over some of the behaviors. The, the part of validation uh, that I, I love that you put in here, and we talked about there is, you know, our role as a therapist is validating the parents first, of course, you'd want to respond that way that is normal of you to want to do as well. It's normal of the child to, to want to do what they're doing. And if we could accept that part, then we can see, how do we, how do we alter this interaction? So it becomes more effective. Um, And get out of this one person's right in this interaction. One person's wrong. I have to prove my child wrong. All of these urges we can have that, you know, might leave us just more exhausted and more, more tense over time. And one of the last things I'll say here on, on, just my ideas of validation is when we get to the point of like uh uh, if i validate it means i you know i'm accepting what they say is i'm not uh, i'm not like your point i'm not accepting i'm not saying the behavior is okay but i'm acknowledging that their emotions are and if i can acknowledge that their emotional experience is is okay and understandable then that also demonstrates to them that they can actually begin to regulate that. Like you, you make a point of validation being kind of the foundational piece to emotional regulation, because if I'm told like that emotion isn't okay, then my approach to it as a child. Now it's just to keep fighting against that emotion. And guess what? The emotion is going to show up when it wants to show up.
1: Yeah. And, and you actually did that a second ago <laughs> with the parent because you sound like a great therapist. And when you're sitting <laughs> with the parent and you say to the parent, I, you know, I understand this is really frustrating, where this is really upsetting. At the same time, you know, it's hard for your child. The only re- way you were able to get to that second part that they can hear that was because you first validated their experience. right? And that lowered their attention and then it enabled them to hear the other perspective on the dialectic with the child. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is tell parents is think about that for yourself. How it would be if someone spoke to you like that, speaking to your child like that, validating their perspective, hearing their perspective. And then you can go ahead and move to, uh, you know, teaching them or helping. And they'll be more regulated, as you said, and open and willing to change. So if we can actually, and that's why I say in the book, Acceptance, validation, mm. mindfulness is the key to change. Right. It's not just about giving up, but doing those steps first can allow change to move more smoothly.
0: And, and as you were talking, I, I did, it did it did remind me to that back to that piece, the timing of it, right? Or in in that not not just the timing of it, but validate what's valid. So I want people to absolutely take that away. You know, doesn't mean we just validate hundred percent all the time, and the the timing of it. So if if they're if you're in the middle of a blowup, you know it might look like you said, "I'm gonna walk away," uh, until until you know you're de-escalating, and and then we'll we'll talk we'll talk when things are calmer. And then you may come back and say, and here's holding the two pieces. I understand that you're really frustrated, and not but th- yeah, and not but and that that language is is not allowed in this house. That's not how we talk to each other in this house. And I do understand that you're really upset. So let's see if we can find other ways that you can communicate those things to me, right?
1: Beautiful, beautiful. Because that allows, and when we get the whole, you know, later on in the book, I even get into punishment and consequences, which are really important. That doesn't teach new behavior. And having those dialogues with your children and validating their experiencing and then moving to a place of what can we do next time to communicate when you're really frustrated or when your sibling's getting upset or you have this really rough day or, at school, where you had some sort of breakup, and you're really mad, how can we do that differently? And that's the job of a parent to parent their child to help them learn more effective ways to deal with strong emotions.
0: Well, I think this is a perfect segue then, because I think we set up the foundational DBT pieces, which are all great, but a lot of them, you know, the first part, well, not, but and a lot of them you talk about are the they're the foundational pieces, but ah, and <laughs> there's the active pieces, right? The more actionable items like positive, negative reinforcement, limit setting, and I so I think this is a great segue to to talk about. All right, what are the actionable stages then? Validating is one thing. It's not rule setting though. It's not limit setting. It's not uh, which are still needed. Uh, so I think po- positive, negative reinforcement. What are they? I-, I love in the book how you describe the negative reinforcement it gets it gets conflated or confused a lot with positive punishment can you explain what those mean and why they are important shaping behavior and in, in creating behavioral change in children yeah or in humans <laughs> yeah.
1: i work so hard on those those couple of chapters because the behavioral concepts positive reinforcement negative reinforcement extinction satiation positive punishment negative punishment first of all most parents aren't behaviorists and they shouldn't be, <laughs> not should, <laughs> you know, and, and and I wanted to help them understand that these concepts exist, but make it like super clear. And I had to get it super clear to be able yeah. to, I appreciate you pointing out that it was clear. Absolutely, I worked, I worked really hard to, positive, positive and neg- negative reinforcement are both strategies to help increase the behavior that you want or any behavior. Mm-hmm. it makes that behavior happen more often. So positive and negative is not as we think about it as you know positive something's good or something's bad. Positive is where we add something right. to a behavior. So if uh, someone, your child speaks to you in a nice way and asks you, say, you know I, I, I love Kayla, how you asked for that. That was so sweet. That's positive reinforcement. Whether you, pl- whether you wanted to reinforce that behavior or not, right. You just did because you added something immediate that was positive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the whole often I give these examples. You know the reason why you're keep uh, using that credit card is because there's a bonus that month. <laughs> so every time you use that credit card, you get a little bonus. So it gets you to use the credit card more. So when you add something, then that's really important. And, and sometimes when we think of positive reinforcement behavior charts, we're thinking about you know giving candy and money, which are all effective, but positive praise. We lose focus on the power of our words yeah. and being specific, and that's that. Actually, so so often we're giving our attention, include all of us as parents, back to mindfulness. Mm-hmm. We're not. We're so. We our mind gets caught, our attention gets caught when there's a negative behavior. But when everything's going sort of smooth and okay, we're not focusing on that, and becoming again more mindful, bringing mindfulness and being aware of your child's behavior. And when the child is you know i know for myself when i see my my children sitting and playing like a board game something something together you know they used to play board games they, <laughs> <and> the, <laughs> once in a while it happens you know i i run over and say i love how you guys are playing together it's yeah. so nice. well i could see oh, finally yeah 10 minutes to breathe right? you know and using that opportunity to now negative reinforcement we use all the time which is also powerful again how do we it's positive reinforcement feels better, motivates us more. Mm. Negative reinforcement is again, what we can do in order to increase the behavior. So what, what we do is we, we want the child or the individual to get some relief by doing the behavior. My favorite example of this, and I'll give it an example of parenting, is when you get into your car and you hear beep, 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 mm-hmm. and you're just so annoyed that you end up putting your seatbelt in because you don't wanna hear the beeping anymore. Right. So why, so it actually increased you doing the behavior of buckling your seatbelt to get relief from the beeping noise. Right. Same thing with a child, you know, the child wants to run out and play or go out with his friends. You gotta finish your homework first. So I'm gonna increase them doing their homework Mm -hmm. so they get relief from not having their friends around. Is that clear?
0: Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. And in with teens where, you know, I've worked on this as the positive reinforcement side, all the verbal acknowledgements for sure. And, and before I, I think move on, I, I want to point out that I, I, it is so powerful to be noticed and recognized when I was a teacher and working on teaching the first year the kids ate me alive. And then you go. Okay, I need structure. I need predictability. I need routine. I need follow through. I need limits. All of yeah. these things we talk about in the book. I need mindfulness, right? I'm feeling anxious. Anyways, I can go on a 10 different days by my teaching days. It was so powerful once I, I be, gained control over the classroom that I used both positive and negative reinforcement. When the kids were doing well, it was my urge to go. Whoo. I can sit down and they'll they'll work. No, I had to actively move around. Hey, so-and-so love how you're working hard. Thank you. I might even add a point for them on the board towards their goal later, you know, some goal or gift at the end of the week or, you know, end of the month kind of reward. And then the kid off task. All right. Uh, you're, you're cutting out on, on, um, on recess time like because you got to get this done or whatever it is. And that's an example. I don't really like cutting out recess time, but like you're you're losing something here or you're gonna have to finish this up. Uh whatever that is. Uh so you know I love the uh, the, the example of the two. So where I've used it with teens or, with, or helping parents is hey day to day if their desired you know goal these days to get to that computer or that device and you say hey you have a three hour window. Well, at five o'clock, if their window's five to eight, and they haven't done their homework or they haven't done those expectations, here, here's a chance to say, "Well, like you said, you can't play until you get those things done." Yeah. So if you're late, you're losing time now, right? And there's that negative something is getting taken away that is undesirable because you want all that time as that kid, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I love the uh, I love the and not even just that example. I, I think throughout the book the The practicality, the simplicity—it's so palatable for I think for anyone. Uh, I think the lat—we're now—we're near the end of your book, and I think uh, limit setting, right? Boundaries, follow through. uh, Why these things are important? What are roadblocks to them? You know, this is the really active piece that again we might have the urge to not do. We might have the urge to give in, or I think simply to stay where we're at, because that's kind of our human nature is yeah. to also avoid
1: change. Yeah, yeah, and it's also, it's easier yeah. and re- more reinforcing to avoid limit setting in the short-term, not in the long-term, but in the short-term when we don't have to put up that limit. And, and again, the child should push back and they likely will push back and it's right. not comfortable. And giving so, and, and we know that children need limits and I think that's a mistake and the research shows this and I know there's a dialectic here on this too and finding that balance, but there are parenting methods or beliefs that no just be positive, be Mm -hmm. unconditional, have the nurturance, have the connection and they will figure those things out. Research shows us that children don't necessarily and the children who do not have limit setting, they actually grow up being more impulsive, difficulty with responsibility struggle setting their own limits in their life and regulating emotions so saying no and putting limits are really essential and there's a reason why children have parents (laughs) they are not fully developed Uh, parents are there to help those children put up those limits and they will push back and giving skills and how to set that limit and how to very practical how to be consistent in those limits um, to make sure that when you're setting up a limit, you're very clear what the limit is, that you're doing it in a non-stimulating environment, that you, uh, you're, you're very concise in your language, that when they push back using the uh, techniques like broken record or planned ignoring, not getting stuck in the power struggle while being mindful of perhaps sometimes what the child is saying and when to be flexible in, in certain situations. So limit setting is, is really, really essential. And if we're not consistent in limit setting, that can create lots of problems. You know, the classic example I give is if the child's in the grocery store and they want the candy bar and it's about to be dinner and you say, sorry, and they start having a tantrum. And what happens is they're going to up the ante. It's going to behavioral burst and they're going to keep screaming and yelling until they're mm-hmm. on the floor and you're worrying that child service is going to come because they're right. child- <laughs> breaking, you know, everything down, throwing... So you just, you have such a stressful day. You say, you know what? Just take the, take the, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, but you do that only every third time, Mm -hmm. you put up your limits Two, you know, two of the times that you're creating a behavior that's practically indestructible because they are on an intermittent reinforcement schedule where, whether they realize it or not every so often. So you have to be consistent. You have to be clear. Like you said, Guy, you have to have structure. There has to be predictability in your parenting. On the dialectic, yes, you're not going to always be perfectly consistent, either because yeah. of yourself or because the child. So limit setting, saying no is really important. And I do have a whole model in the book. And when you get to the book about uh, some, some ways how to balance uh, you know, your core values and making area for flexibility. Uh, when children try to push past the limits so you can Mm -hmm. be more mindful in where your hard limit is, where this is an area where I'm not going to... But where are areas where I can be more flexible?
0: For sure. And I like the example of the grocery store scenario because this happens, right? And again, the first thing I feel, right, is, oh my gosh, who's judging me? And that is so uncomfortable. What do parents think I'm horrible? Like everyone's looking at me, this... And it's tough to be mindful and acknowledge that and sit with it. And, and, and to your point earlier to then respond most effectively, because if you do end up reinforcing it, Hey, again, I'll validate every parent. I get it. I've actually, as a novice therapist did that, you know, (laughs) with a a kid I took out in the community, I, I did that same, almost same exact thing. And it, you know, and it spiraled and I was like, Oh my gosh, everyone's looking at me. And then, you know, I have the spiral of everyone thinks, oh, what is this guy doing? Isn't he a therapist? Why is he?" you know,
1: yeah.
0: it, ha- you know, that's, that's our nature. Um, so again, being mindful, what, what comes up for you and, and probably, you know, even in those sessions with the therapist, if you have that, or if you reflect later and you're able to acknowledge and accept that, Hey, when that happens, you are going to get anxious. You're, probably going to feel judged you you might be being judged what's most effective you know and yeah the intermittent reinforcers you talk about that it's like gambling right it's gonna oh. come sometime right I'll, I'll keep going at this and and that the the kids are supposed to keep pushing uh and and it's the the, the lesson there in the limit i mean there's so many lessons but one of the huge lessons that I talk about with with the kids, when they say it doesn't help that my parents sets these limits, you know, I validate that. Yeah, I could see that. It's probably, it's not fun, right? I'd want to have my games all the time too. And it it's forcing you to, forcing the child to sit with the discomfort, sit with having to delay gratification, sit with the anxiety that maybe they're trying to run from to get the the thing to soothe it. So that limit provides so many, so many things. Now, the one thing I'll ask you here is, what do you say to the parent that says, limits just don't work for my kid. I just, they don't listen.
1: So there, there again is the balance of acceptance and change. You, sometimes the reason why the limits aren't working is because they're not implementing them effectively or they're not clear about their limits as I mentioned or they're, they're becoming these emotional blow-ups and the parents are just, oh, this is not working and leaves and they don't know how to stay regulated and consistent or the child breaks the limit, they don't know how to follow up on it. They're too scared to put in a consequence where right. appropriate. There, there's, the, the child is running the show as opposed to the parents, they're in control. So that's very often the case. However, even if a child, the parent made a mistake for many years and perhaps limits with this child where he's at is not gonna work First of all, everyone has limits.
0: Right.
1: If you're that child who limits doesn't work, I, I could almost guarantee I can not tell you for sure. If that mm-hmm. child walks in their house, you know, with um, some illegal substance and starts giving out to the siblings and having a drug party uh, at your dinner table, I, I would imagine you're going to put up a limit and it's going to work. Or he comes in and starts to take a baseball bat and decides to, you know, go ahead and smash all your furniture. And that limit might be walking out of the house or maybe call, I mean, this is extreme, but maybe you got to call the cops in a case where there's danger to other right. people. That's setting a limit. Second, yeah. There is this is not okay. It's giving a yes. message. There is a, so we all have those limits. The other end of it, which is really important, is some things aren't working and for whatever reason with this child, and that's where the acceptance is. Perhaps the limit is not, we have to maybe accept that this is not, our child's is made choices or is at a point where they're not responding to me more and this is something i can't control and, I, and it hurts me terribly but mm-hmm. i have to move towards acceptance and and that's the beauty of what i try to give over the uncontrollable child not every situation can be changed right it doesn't mean there's no hope and that doesn't mean there aren't things you can do as a parent to be more effective and move towards acceptance change acceptance
0: and Part of that, and I'm glad you brought that up because it reminded me and it's in your book too, is honoring the parent's grief sometimes of expectations, right? You didn't necessarily expect that maybe your, your child was born with um, autism or born with uh, maybe, you know, a dyslexia and, and a challenge that you didn't foresee coming and has provided, a, a, you know, a lot of distress for, for you in the household and, you know, honoring the parent's grief in that process if you know i wish things were easier were simpler
1: and like totally understandable absolutely yeah you know? absolutely even though it, your your neighbor seems to have it all great and it's not always like that no. but Even if it appears like that or perhaps there are some people who have children you know like you said whether it's medical whether it's you know academic neurological there are a lot of things that that they did not expect they were not prepared for and certain limits don't work with certain individuals or certain temperaments and learning to accept that and, and honor, like you said, those emotions or those griefs that come along with it. But letting go of judgment and fighting is going to be more effective uh, than, uh, than trying to just keep changing something that's unchangeable.
0: Beautifully stated. And I think we could if I could sum this up and I don't, I can't sum this up. But one huge takeaway for me from reading the book and just thinking about this is, you know, on one hand, yes, it's, it's, it's about using these skills to create a more regulated environment, to better manage behaviors, to uh, respond more effectively. And kind of what I mentioned earlier and the huge outcome here, you know, for me, when I talk to parents, is that you get a better relationship with your child so that you can still love and connect with them, even when times are tough. Yes, That's where I feel so much uh, compassion. And even uh, sometimes I've, you know, I, I go, I really feel for you. Like this, this problem that you were you, you, you consistently facing has become the relationship. And I know it's hard to go, you know, to, to step back and go, I can still love and connect with my child, even when there's, you know, tension and, in fighting and uncontrollable things going on. Well, I took a, 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 a enough of your time today, although I could talk to you probably easily for several more hours. Um, is there any last points you want to say to parents out there or even prospective parents or just anyone that's listening about what you do? Or you know?
1: I guess my message is, as I've said, perhaps on this podcast already, is that acknowledging that it's parenting is hard and it's not easy. And you probably tried really hard and many ways were successful and still struggling in some other areas. Realize that change is constant, that there's always more information, more skills and strategies. And the goal is to keep in mind in a dialectical perspective, I'll end with this, as we say in DBT, you're doing the best you can in this very moment And if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously also are looking how to do better. So balance that you're doing the best you can. And at the same time, you want to move towards change and figure out how to be a better parent.
0: Definitely beautifully stated. Uh, Mattis Miller, licensed clinical social worker, author of the new book, The Uncontrollable Child. Where can people find this book today? (laughs)
1: Okay. So if you go to my website, theuncontrollablechild.com, on the website, we have a link to all your favorite sellers, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, BAM, wherever you buy your books. Uh, It is in local bookstores as well. Uh, You can check in Barnes and Nobles. Uh, They do carry them in many stores. Uh, After you go ahead and wherever you purchase the book, please come back to the website and you can actually put your receipt number and we have a whole bunch of bonus pages where I explain the behavioral charts, which we didn't talk about, the roadblocks. I explain how you could utilize those tools if you put that information in. And also on my website, we have events. we will have a media page. If you put in your email address or for alerts, we'll send you a lot of that information. So uh, yeah, I hope you guys can uh, purchase it. And if anyone has any questions or feedback, you can go to the bottom of my website And there is a place where you could uh, contact me, you know, send a message, and I'd love to hear from you.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you all for listening. This has been Therapies Podcast with Modest Miller, and we'll talk to you next time.